Uh, our scripture reader today is my daughter, Ellie Heron, and uh, she's going to be reading Psalm 148 that's found on page 526 in the Chair Bible. Um, Ellie, come on up. And in honor of God's word, uh, let's stand together. Listen as I read. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps. Fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people, praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him, praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ellie. Um, so we're in a series called Psalms of the People, and uh, we are making our way through. Uh, we gave an opportunity for you as a congregation to submit psalms a few weeks ago, and uh, we got quite a few submissions, and so we thank you for your participation there. Uh, we could not tackle uh, all of the psalms, and so uh, we tried to pick uh, somewhat of a, of a range of, of the psalms um, and picking psalms that maybe hint at, at some different things. And this psalm today... Uh, is a, uh, a psalm, as you just heard, it is a psalm that, uh, a psalm of praise. And uh, it's, it's towards the end of this collection of psalms. And, uh, you know, sometimes you look at 150 psalms and you say, um, you know, maybe there's no flow to these psalms. But, but th there, there is a general flow. Uh, one of the things that the psalms are doing is retelling the story of Israel. Telling, telling what God has done in this people that he has called out. And so over the course of these 150 psalms, which were their songbook, they were their prayer book, um, they, they're also constantly reflecting or reminding themselves of the grand story of God and his people. Um, and as you come to the end of the psalms, uh, there's this little section of five psalms at the very end. Uh, and from so, so those last five psalms are kind of this, uh, uh, they're, they're intentionally grouped together. And, uh, and what we're going to see today in Psalm 148 is, is really, in, in some ways, you could, you could just stretch this out and look at this uh, kind of this, at least this demeanor, as the demeanor of these, these final five psalms. As they collected all of these songs, all of these prayers, uh, there's kind of an intentionality of, of grouping these last psalms uh, all together. And, and here, here is why. Uh, as you look at Psalm 148 and you see verse 1, uh, we're going to get right into it, and we're going to ask this question of what, what's the invitation? What, what, is, what is the psalmist uh, calling us to, or what is he putting uh, in front of us? And uh, some scholars believe this is David, and they've got some significant reasons for why they think that, but there's not consensus, so we don't really know who the psalmist is, uh, who it is that wrote this, uh, these words. But the psalmist starts with praise the Lord. And if you see in your Bible, verse 1, uh, right, right there, my, the way my Bible lays it out, that, that's on a line all by itself. It says, praise the Lord. Well, in Hebrew, that's a single word. 
It's a single word, and it's the word hallelujah. Hallelujah. Maybe, maybe you've heard uh, that word before. Hallelujah is a compound word. Hallelujah, and then Yah, so praise, and then Yah, which is short for Yahweh or Jehovah. Um, and, and interestingly, as you kind of think about what is this saying, praise Yahweh, uh, you begin to realize that this is not something that you say to God as much as it's something that you would say to others. You, you should praise Yahweh. It, it's an invitation. It's a call. Praise Yahweh. So you're not necessarily saying to Yahweh, praise Yahweh. You're looking around and saying, you should praise Yahweh. If you think about this compound word, the idea of Yah is singular, but the, the, the idea of, of the, the praise part is, is plural. And so there's a sense in which, you know, what, what, what does that mean? Well, if you were just like saying in our, in our language, like, it means y'all should praise the Lord. So apparently this psalmist is, you know, grew up in Tennessee. And so y'all y- y- should praise the Lord. It, it's a collective. It's saying not just one person, but the group. Like everybody out there, guys, brothers, sisters, like y'all, we, pr- pr- praise Yahweh. Praise the Lord. And he just keeps it going. So if you read through the psalm, as we just did, and you look through those 14 verses, you're going to see that in the, if, you, if, you, if you looked at this in the Hebrew, you would see that there's 13 times in 14 verses that some form of the, of the, the, the praise part shows up in, in, this, in this prayer, in this song, this, this constant, persistent call to praise. As I, as I just said, if you just want to roam around for a second, just turn a page over or a page back, you're going to see that all of these psalms, Psalm 146, Psalm 147, Psalm 148, Psalm 149, Psalm 150, they're, they're all saturated with this call to praise. Uh, and I, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, uh, but it's just a good opportunity to mention it again. B- be careful. You're free to have personal preferences for sure. But be careful in your criticism of the repetition uh, in songs. Uh, last Sunday was G- uh, July 11th, and it was 7-11. And uh, there's a little joke that sometimes roams around Christian circles. And it's like, all these new songs, they're all 7-11. The same seven words, 11 times. And, you know, there, there's, there's a part of me that I, I get what you're saying. I understand what you, what you mean, I think. But look at these psalms. These psalms are repeating and repeating and repeating. And, and yes, in, in the New Testament, Jesus does talk about this idea of vain repetitions. But, but the accent should be on vain, not, not on the repetition part. J- Jesus is saying vain means empty. Vain means worthless. And so, so Jesus is saying don't, don't do things that are worthless and repeat them and repeat them and repeat them. You look throughout the scriptures, repetition can be used as a very meaningful way of meditating, of remembering, of celebrating. You know, our church is, is, uh, over the years, we've been aligning ourselves more and more and more with the liturgical calendar, with the the historic church calendar. And and one of the things that you realize is there's there's a lot of repetition. There's a lot of things that you revisit. And it feels like as you get older, the years go faster and you're running into Lent again and you're running into Advent again. You're, you're running into these seasons of the church calendar. And that repetition is actually a means. It's a means by which we remember uh, the most important things that we actually meditate on, digest these, these truths. And as this psalmist writes, 
he is not afraid of repetition uh, at, at all. And as I was saying a second ago, this is like in a five-part celebratory climax uh, of the Psalms, but praise everywhere. And so you, you know, maybe you're asking, like, what does the word praise mean? I, I don't feel like that's a word that we need to give a lot of definition to. I think we kind of get the sense of, of what praise is, has the idea of, of celebration, of honor, of, of jubilee, of joy. In other words, um, you know, I, I said earlier, maybe you could just say for this psalm, it's like hashtag dance party. You know, th- th- this psalmist is calling for a dance party, for a shindig, for a rave, for a, a mosh pit. You know, if they really were from Tennessee, if they really were, this would be a, a square dance, a, 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 a barn party, a hoedown, a pig roast. Uh, <laughs> So yeah, it, it, he's calling for a party. He's inviting us to, uh, to, to respond, to celebrate, to recognize, uh, the, 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 um, to, to, to respond with this, this attitude of, of, of joy and celebration. So that's the, the invitation. But, but who should do it? And, and how should they do it? So that's, that's what I want to turn our attention to. Who and, and, and how? Well, this, this psalm is one of those psalms that is such a gift for someone who has to teach it or preach it. Because it is just laid out. It is just laid out beautifully. And maybe you caught it uh, as, as it was read through. But you know, scholars just love this. And, it, and you know, any, any resource you find on Psalm 148 points this out. It's, it's just such a, such a beautiful layout. So uh, verse 1a, the very first phrase, is, is a single word in Hebrew. Hallelujah. But then the second part of verse 1 through verse 6, you get this sense of, of who should praise Yah. Who should praise Yah? Who should praise Yahweh? Well, the angels, the sun, the moon, the stars, heavens, waters above the heavens, it, it, all, everything up there, all, all the heavens, the sky, everything up, everything up there should praise Yah. And then in verses 7 through 13, everything down here, all the earth, the land, and, and you see through the, the, all, the, the, all of those verses, the oceans and all that is in them, certainly marine life. Um, but, you know, biblical scholars point out the fact that there's another inference here when it talks about uh, everything that's in the sea and the depths um, or the deeps. Uh, you know, so along with sea turtles and, and you know, giant squid, there's also a sense in which this is referring to like, like, like the sense of chaos or even demons. And you say, wait, what? Huh? What's going, what's going on with that? Well, remember the original readers. And, and if you're familiar with the original readers and their understanding of the sea or what was in the sea, what was under the sea, they, they, they had a very real sense in which the sea was a place of chaos. It was the place of demons. Uh, when, we, when we had the opportunity to, to go to the Holy Land a few years ago, we were on the Sea of Galilee, and our, our, uh, our tour guide was, was telling us that their view of the sea, was, it was unknown down there. And, and the sense of, of, of uh, uh, boat accidents and shipwrecks and all of the chaos of the sea, they, they had an association with the spiritual realm in regard to what was in the sea or what was under the sea. And so if you notice in verses 1 through 6, the angels are referenced. There's a sense in which in 7 through 13, the, the, the demons are referenced. And it's like even, even the demonic, even, even the, the, these unknown, these, 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 these uh, factors of chaos, they, they should too. They should praise Yah. Uh, the environment. Weather is referenced. Topography 
Yeah, the mountains, vegetation, various kinds of trees, meaning all the trees, animals, you know, reptiles, birds, like all, all of that. And then it gets to people. People, rich and poor. People, powerful and not so powerful. People, young and people, old. You see that in verses 11 and 12. Kings of the earth and all peoples. Princes and all rulers of the earth. Young men and maidens together. Old men and children. So there's this, this, this broad, you know, these are, these are um, some things are named, but the point is this consistent sense of like everything down here. Everything up there, everything down here, all of it. Now, that, maybe those categories sound familiar to you, and uh, it wouldn't be surprising if they do. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, just about every scholar I read, references the connection of Psalm 148 with Genesis 1. And as God creates the world, one of the things that God does is he separates the sky and the land, up there and down here. And then as you walk through the days of creation, you see God filling those two spaces. He fills the heavens, and then he fills the earth. And so as, as these, as these uh, spaces are filled, we have the unfolding of the Genesis narrative, of the creation of the world. And so here the psalmist sits down, and the psalmist it starts off with those first six verses and says, everything that's up there, all that stuff that God created, when he made two spaces and he filled the heavens, all that stuff should praise Yah. And then down here. When God filled this space, everything that's in it, everything here should, should praise Yah. So everything organic and inorganic, everything animate and inanimate, everything living and everything non-living, it should praise Yah. Now, that's a little complicated because you say mountains, they're not living. Like, I mean, at least a tree is living, but mount mountains aren't even living. Rocks aren't even living. Like, how does this happen? Well, the, the inference seems to be by living according to their original design. So sun, moon, stars, they, they are as beautiful, they, they, they are beautiful as they are, as they exist, and as they do exactly what they were created to be and do. The sunsets, the stars at night, the, the beauty of, of the moon. These things are things that fill our heart with grandeur. They, they, they fill our heart with praise. They, they, they help us to, to understand the world is, is bigger and more grander. The universe is beyond our ability to comprehend. And as they function, as they were meant to function, they bring praise to, the, to Yah. Trees are beautiful as they do exactly what they were created to be and do. You know, trees bring us oxygen. We wouldn't be able to breathe if we didn't have trees. And then you think about the beauty of trees as, they, as their leaves change in the fall, as their buds come in the spring. I don't think raking their leaves is great, but you know, the, the, the rest of it, it's, it's a pretty, pretty, fabulous, uh, pretty fabulous display. And so sun, moon, stars, trees, birds, guess what? F follow the pattern. Humans too. Humans too. Humans are beautiful when we live exactly as we were created to live. As we are what we were created to be. You, know, my, my, you, know, you, you look at the world and you say, well, what's wrong with this place then? You know, this sounds like a good plan. Everything do its job. You know, if you've ever played on a sports team, you know, when every player on the field does their job, it, it works out really, really nicely. 
uh, when every player on the field doesn't do their job, it, it fails. You could have a lot of people doing their jobs, some people not doing their jobs, and there's incredible consequences for that. So what, what is wrong with the world? Why doesn't everybody just do what they were created to do? Well, the problem, you know, why is the world broken? The, the answer to that is sin. What, what is sin? A, a definition of sin is missing the mark. Sin is not hitting the mark. Sin is missing the mark. In other words, sin is missing God's good design. Sin is things happening in a way that God never intended for them to happen. If you attend here regularly, you know that one of my favorite ways to talk about sin is the vandalism of shalom. That what you have in the first two chapters of the Bible is the world in perfect condition. Everything in the world was right. And then sin showed up and all that was right was scarred. It was infected. And that includes human beings and our relationship with each other, our relationship with ourselves, and our relationship with the God of the universe, with, with Yah. So think about this. As you think in these categories of creation and, 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 and trees and mountains and water, and, and all, some of the best environmental work that can be done on this earth is to stop the abuses. Think about that. The people that are they're heavily invested in environmental causes, what, what are they often trying to do? They're trying to stop the overforesting of, of, of regions. They're trying to stop the overfishing. They're trying to stop the careless disposal of trash. They're trying to stop careless killing of species. Now, I, I understand, like everything else, it can get out of control, environmentalism. But the best environmentalists work, they're, they're saying, let's stop the abuses it's not that you can't eat fish, let's, let's catch them right. It's not that you can't cut down a tree, but let's, let's do it right. But let's stop the abuses so that this earth can function as it's designed to function. Well, that's true for humanity too. Maybe you could say that some of the best people work is to stop the abuses, to stop the addictions, to stop the violence towards spouses, and children, and the poor, and minorities, and the disadvantaged. How about violence towards anybody? To stop the, the over or the under eating. To stop the over or the under working. To stop the, the, the abuse of, of sex outside of God's good design within biblical marriage. To stop the greed where there's just this hoarding of, of resources to stop the anger that just overflows in, in our current cultural moment where it's so clearly seen in social media. So some of the best people work is to stop the abuses so that humans can function as they were meant to function. You, you see, you, you have a design. That's the good news here. Humans are made in what we call the imago Dei or the image of God. That you were made for something. You're not a blank slate. You're not, you're not just something that you, you have to go figure out, what do I do? What do I fill this thing with? It's just an empty container. No, you're not a blank slate. You, you, you have a design and you have a purpose. And sin has come in and sin has contaminated that. Sin has con uh, it, it's infected that. It's caused us to be confused about what we were created to do. What we were created to be. Sin ultimately separated us from God. And that has incredible consequences. 
Now, maybe you're here and you look at that and you say, no, no, I, I want to be a blank slate. I don't want anything put on me. I, I, I want to decide my own, you know, make all my own choices. I want to find my own identity. I want to do my own thing. Like, I, I hate that. I want to be what I want to be. Well, he, he, here's, here's how I want to respond to that. When you live according to your design, not only do you bring praise to Yah, the one who created you, but, and this is just such a beautiful gift from God, God in his grace designed it so that when you do live by design, you flourish. I mean, you've heard examples like this before, but if, if you have a light bulb and you decide to use the light bulb, you, you know what a light bulb is supposed to do, but you use the light bulb as a hammer, that, it's not going to work out. And there, there's a million examples like that of taking an item that was meant to do one thing and using it to do something contrary to its design or other than its design. And there's incredible cons consequences. When you use it according to design, not only do, is, is that thing flourished, but the, the end result is a good thing for others, for the world. So yes, following in God's good design does involve saying no. It involves saying no to yourself. It involves saying no to things that you might think are fun. But in restricting those things, it actually ends up for the glory of Yah, for the praise of Yah, and for the good of you. What, what a gift the way that God has designed this. You know, there's a number of times in the Bible where we are told, if you don't, if you don't praise Yah, if, if humans, if you don't do it, guess what? The rocks will. If you don't do it, the rocks are going to do it. Well, think about the, the, the idea here of design. A rock does not have a real hard time living according to its design. Would you agree? It's not real, not real, not real hard. Like if you just got to, you know, a little magic wand and you became a rock, I think it's pretty easy to live according to design if you're a rock. But God did something really unique with humans. He created us with, with a will, with the ability to decide with agency. You, you can initiate. You, you can decide things in your life. And guess what that means? Sometimes you decide wrong things. So, sometimes you choose things that are contrary to God's design and they are harmful to you. So yeah, a rock doesn't, you know, they don't have a hard time living according to God's design, but who wants to be a rock? No, nobody does. Look, look at the potential of humanity. Look at what God made humans to be. We are in reflection of God. That's been severed. Sin has severed that. Sin has contaminated that. But that's the, that, that's the picture. Our role is harder than a rock's role, okay? But wow, what potential there is. Well, let's, let's close with this. Why? So the invitation was to praise Yah. Who should do it? Everything up there and everything down here. How should they do it? They should do it by living according to design. But why? Maybe some of you are familiar with the author Simon Sinek. Uh, he's written several books, but he gave a TED Talk a few years ago uh, that's become like one of the most viewed TED Talks in the history of TED, which that's saying something. And uh, it's just been watched uh, a bunch of times, and it's called Start With Why. And so you know, he, he affirms the fact that, that what matters, that, that question, the, the how question, that matters. But why? Why is by far the most important question. 
The psalm that we're looking at here was submitted actually by two different people uh, in, the, uh, in the opportunity to submit psalms a few weeks ago. And both submitted it, and, 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 and uh, had the, the, the comments that they made about why they submitted it had, were related to the idea of stirring their heart, of, of, of stoking the fires of their soul, of, of causing them to, 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 to respond to God. Why? Why would there be people in the 21st century reading something from almost 3,000 years ago and just finding it to light their heart on fire? What, what, what is it about this? What, what's behind that? Well, we would certainly be helped to see that God's design is not just the how. God's design is also a why. Why praise God? Because look at what he did. Look at how good he made this place. Can you imagine this place unscarred by sin? Can you imagine how it was? I mean, think, you know, Dave was just talking about the sunrise and the sunsets and how beautiful they are. Could you imagine what it would be like without a scarred world? Your best day, your best vacation. You know, C.S. Lewis talks about this. It's like even, even the best of things, the best meal you've ever had, it is a faint echo of how good it will be, of how good it was, of how glorious this creation was before sin showed up. So God's design is a how, living according to that design, but it's also a why. Like it's so, so good. But the psalmist points to another why, maybe what we could call the ultimate why. Let's take a look at that. Verses 13 and 14. The psalmist says, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. He has raised up a horn for his people. Uh, this, is a, uh, this phrase is obviously imagery. And this phrase shows up a few different times in the Old Testament. And it is associated with, it's, it, it's an imagery for victory. It's the idea of a bull raising its head after it has won. The horns rot, like raise up. And it's this evidence or this sign that victory has been won. And so for the people of Israel, uh, if you're thinking of them specifically, the original readers of this psalm, Yahweh had brought them so many victories. I mean, they, they have a train wreck of, of problems. I mean, they are a train wreck of problems, but, but God brings all of these victories, battle after battle, opportunity after opportunity, the, 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 the God of heaven, Yahweh himself, uh, bringing these, these, these various victories, raising a horn here and raising a horn there. But if you back up and look at verses 11 through 13, you see that God's work in the world is meant to shed light on all of the earth. I mean, he says all of the people. The point of those verses is no human being is left out. Everybody is called in here. Everybody. So it's not just the nation of Israel. It's not just one people group. It's everybody is called to respond. And so when you get to verse 14, it says he's raised up a horn. You know, what, what, what is going on? Well, you, 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 I said this a minute ago, but the, the collection of the Psalms, the 150 Psalms, one of the goals of the Psalms is to rehearse the story of God's work in the world. Rehearse God's story in regard to his work with the nation of Israel. Rehearse God's story and the story in regard to God's promises to the world. And the story of Israel is always looking forward. It's always longing for something to come. And that's most clearly associated with this reality of the coming of one they called Messiah. They all were longing and looking forward to the coming 
of Messiah. Well, now here we are in the year, you know, in the year 20, uh, 2021. And what, what do we know about the Messiah? J- Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one that they were constantly looking for and longing for, even if they weren't quite sure what they were looking for and longing for. Jesus was the one that was promised. Jesus was the king from the line of David who would sit on the throne forever. Jesus was the promised Messiah who would rescue the people of God. Don't you see? Jesus came to deal with the problem of sin that has so tainted and and, and infected our sense of identity. He came to deal with that problem so that we could live as God designed us to live. Jesus came to conquer sin. Jesus came to conquer Satan. And he came to make all things new. This is the horn that Yahweh has raised up. This is the the sign of ultimate victory. When, When Jesus shows up on the earth, he shows up in the womb of a teenager. And while Jesus is in the womb of a teenager... There's a relative of his that is, is, is born. And we know him as John the Baptist. And so Jesus is in the womb. John the Baptist comes out of the womb. And John the Baptist's dad, his name is Zechariah. And in Luke chapter 1, we read this prayer from John the Baptist's dad. And as John the Baptist's dad, it's been revealed to him that his son, John the Baptist, is going to be a forerunner for the Messiah, for, for the one that they've been waiting for, for Jesus. And as Zechariah holds his son, knowing who this son was going to be, the forerunner, and he prays, part of, part of what he says is, the Lord has raised up a horn of salvation. That, 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 that's exactly what goes through Zechariah's mind, is the horn of salvation. He's like, God has chosen my son to be the forerunner for the baby that's on the way. Like, on the heels of my son is the horn of salvation is the promised Messiah, is Jesus Christ. And Zechariah was right. Jesus was born, born shortly after John, and you might say the rest is history. Jesus won the ultimate victory, the only victory that really matters. Jesus is the ultimate horn of salvation that has come. And you might say, in honor of this psalm, joy to the world, praise Yah, dance party, celebrate, respond to this good news of that he read was from Isaiah 40, and this is what Jesus reads. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Did you hear what's in that text? Restoration, renewal, justice, salvation. Jesus' first public reading of Scripture is saying, I have come, and this is what I'm bringing. I have come, and it's going to be full of restoration and renewal and justice and salvation. See the salvation of God. Look at what's happening here. And he did it. He secured it through his life, his death, and his resurrection. Then we're promised that Jesus is soon coming back to finish that job. So actually, just like the psalmist was looking forward, and yet he said he has raised a horn of salvation. The the psalmist is saying, this this horn that you're going to raise, like I I, I retroactively recognize you're going to do it. It's a done deal. It's a guarantee. So just like the psalmist said you've raised that horn but was looking forward, you've done it. We have the exact same posture. 
Jesus came and lived his life perfectly, died on the cross as a penalty for our sin, as the, as the payment for our sin, and then rose again, crushing sin and Satan and death. And we say, the, the, the horn of salvation has been raised. Is this world right yet? No. No, Jesus has to come back and finish the job. But we say, just like the psalmist, you've done it. You've raised the horn of salvation, and we cannot wait to taste it in full. Listen, if you have tasted it, if you've tasted and seen this Jesus, then there should be a joyful, thankful, happy disposition in your life. Now, I'm not talking about being naive, and I'm not talking about being Pollyanna. I'm saying that this story itself is rooted in the real world. Read the Psalms. Read what the, the, the nature of the world that they navigated. It's full of hardship and full of trial. But they end with five psalms saying, in light of this story, praise Yah. In, in light of this story, there should be an inherent sense of joyfulness in your heart. You know, this idea of joy in the Bible has an idea that is worth sharing as we close. Joy has a sense of buoyancy. And that's such a great descriptor of joy. If you're buoyant, does that mean that the wave couldn't knock you under the water? Sure it could. Look at buoys. Buoys get knocked under the water all the time. But what is buoyancy? Buoyancy means that you, 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 you pop back up. Because the water is heavier than the object. Part of our posture towards the God of heaven is to recognize that his glory, which means weightiness, that he's weightier than we are. And so, yes, we get hit with the waves of this life, but, but he's weightier than we are. And, 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 when, and, and when, we, we, when we recognize that, he pushes us down, and we come back up to the surface. We, we can breathe. He, he lifts us up. The psalmist says he is the lifter of our heads. He comforts the brokenhearted. Buoyancy. When we experience the glory of God, it should lift us up. And the Psalms are saying, yes, we've navigated all these pits and valleys, all the reality of emotions in this world, and guess what the end of the story should be? Praise Yah. So in Psalm 148, you get it as bookends. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise Yah, praise Yah. Beautiful bookends. May it, may it be so. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for uh, uh, this, this opportunity to, to gather, to, to celebrate this good news of a creator who had a design. God, this, this recognition of sin that, that broke this world, that stained this world. And God, now as our, as our, as our servers begin to, to move forward and we begin to turn our attention to, uh, to the table, to the bread and to the cup, God, we, we, we thank you for this, this great gift of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.